Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Harry Kunain carries the message, and there's a reason why he does this stuff for a living. He's written two books about recovery that we get into and talk about here. His mother, uh, a politician, successful politician, uh, Madeline Dean, as he was bottoming out, she was starting up her first major campaign uh, for the state house in Pennsylvania. And uh, the story as to how he got to that bottom and to how he recovered into a life now, which is an amazing one, uh, is quite compelling, quite entertaining, but most importantly, it's inspiring. Uh, this is a guy who faced, you know, from, from a affluent suburb um, outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, he's there in his 20s and he's in the middle of a home invasion that, uh, at that point in time with all the drugs he was doing and the, the place his life had gone, uh, it was business as usual. And now business as usual for him is his beautiful family, his successful career, uh, and sharing stories like his with people like us so we can help, hopefully, maybe somebody like you if you're struggling and you're listening today. All right, so this is a great conversation coming up with Harry Cunane. But first, some great music. Kevin Souza. Your story, I think, is so important because, and I, I spoke, I was speaking with Karen about this last week, uh, you know, who helped set this up. There's not a lot of people with, a, in, in my experience, uh, being about being over 10 years uh, sober now, I know you're right around 10 years, with, op with time, the, the opioid epidemic is so new that there's not a lot of people with, you know, you're coming up on 10 years with a lot of time. Uh, th that have recovered from opioid addiction. Is that something you have seen, you know, in, in your experience where it's, it's relatively new? So people with a lot of time, that's rare. I've definitely seen that, um, you know, and, and through different programs that I got involved in early in my recovery, uh, what I really focused on early on because I, I couldn't always identify people with a lot of time specifically with an opioid disorder was, you know, whether it was someone talking about alcohol, someone talking about methamphetamine, whatever it was, to just find those similarities. Um, but what's been remarkable is so I have about nine and a half years now, and, and the amount of people that are out there that are building time and have that time now for people who are just coming into this, is I think just incredibly remarkable. How many people in recovery that have this lived experience are there to help the next guy or girl that comes into the program who's out there struggling with opioids today? Because what I've seen, you know, more than anything is just how much more deadly yeah. an opioid addiction has become uh, from 2012 when I entered into recovery to, you know, really the, the game of roulette that it is today where you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in, in the rooms of recovery, 
we work as an alcoholic and drug addict, I can speak for myself, you work to compare yourself out. So to walk into a room with a bunch of, you know, just old school drunks who are there to help you and who have the solution. But if you're looking to say, hey, I, I don't I don't belong to this group. There's nobody here that, you know, for me, I've had an Adderall addiction or a cocaine addiction or now it's more and more current. Hey, they don't have an opioid addiction. It's just another reason to leave. So I think people like you that are in the rooms that are in recovery, that are outspoken like this, that are helping to break the stigma. I think it's a huge step. Absolutely. There's incredible power in just the number of stories that are out there because everybody can find a way to relate with somebody. I remember going to, you know, 12 step meetings early on and, and people kept telling me if I don't relate, if I don't hear my story yet, keep coming and I will. And, and I found that to be the case. And, and as I listened more and got further into my recovery process, I, I could really see truly though that, you know, those surface level pieces that I could identify with early on aren't as important, right? What's important is what we went through and what we're trying to do collectively in terms of trying to, to strive for recovery, strive to, you know, put the drugs down, but more importantly, strive to just grow and be better people. Um, you know, so finding the ability to relate on that deeper level for me came later, but it it is dangerous in the beginning because it's so easy to find and really pick apart anything that doesn't match with, and I'll say for me, that didn't match with my experience to say, I'm different. This might work for you, but it's not going to work for me, and this is why. Uh, so to break down those barriers and get as many stories of recovery out there as possible, I think it's just so beneficial to everybody who's trying to find their way along this path. Well, two of the stories that you've gotten out there personally, Under Our Roof is a book that was published about about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. You wrote with your mother, uh, Madeline Dean, um, who's a politician, a successful politician. And then you wrote one with your wife, You, you Are Always Loved. Uh, and it's kind of, it isn't kind of, it's a children's book and it can help break the stigma of addiction. Now, obviously, the, we'll thread these books and these messages into into our conversation, but I want to go back to you as a child. You remind me a lot of myself because your mother writes or says, you know, you were an outgoing kid. You always had a gang of people around you. Uh, you had a light coming off you. Uh, this is before the alcohol and drugs, but internally, you know, you, like I, and like many other alcoholics, if they're listening, can relate to this. You felt like you didn't get the playbook to life. You felt like there's a manual that everybody else has that I haven't gotten. Absolutely. And I'll quickly just correct you to say, so both of the books, uh, my mom and I did them together and are on the title, but you are right in highlighting my wife, uh, Juliet, who I could not have done the work on either of them to put those okay. stories out there <laughs> all right um but but to, to your point you know that my childhood i was you know externally i looked really popular i was always surrounded with people and the more that i've unpacked you know my emotions and what i my experiences as i've been in recovery what i recognized was a pretty simple feeling once i identified it and that was that i had this underlying fear that if people really knew me, if they got to know who I really was, what was really happening in my mind, 
then they wouldn't accept me. You know, so I always surrounded myself with people for validation, for fun, and so that I didn't have to sit with myself. And that little fear of a lack of being accepted, you know, once the drugs came into the picture, just grew exponentially. Because then I really was living in a way that that a lot of people weren't going to accept and weren't going to be happy about and just built shame on top of shame um, to where, you know, I just felt like I couldn't get out, yeah. you know, but, but you couldn't, you know, if you looked at me as a eight year old, you would have never seen that because I, I wouldn't show it. I was afraid to show how I felt. I love how you say, by the way, uh, towards the end of your, um, and I love it because I can relate to it. Uh, towards the end of your addiction, you said, you know, you would have rather died than have sat down with your parents and told them what was really going on with you because there was so much shame attached to that. And I think that can keep a lot of people drunk and a lot of people high or even in recovery, sober people, that can keep them wrestling with whatever demons they have going on that they haven't shared with people. Absolutely. Um, and, and that, like, that built over time, right? You know, I remember... For me, I, I did, um, you know, I had education programming in school about about drugs and alcohol. And my takeaway at the time was drugs are bad. Alcohol is bad. If you do them, you're bad. Yeah. And, you know, when I, when I first started and found a way to sort of justify drinking or smoking for the first time, um, it felt okay. But that deep held belief that this is wrong stuck with me and, and, and is so powerful to the sense of, you know, I wrote about in the book an experience where, you know, I was having testing done at the hospital and, you know, I went into anaphylactic shock and I, I'll never know whether that was a direct result of being on drugs and not disclosing what I was on. Um, but I'm sitting there, I'm, you know, I'm high on opioids and they're doing this procedure. And all of a sudden my throat is closing. The doctor is, you know, giving me shots of epinephrine, trying to sort of stop my body from going into anaphylactic shock. And they just keep asking, is there anything you're not telling us? <laughs> and in spite of my throat physically closing, I couldn't say it. I'd rather not say it, you know? So I, I sat there just in this pain of it is what it is. I can't get through this because I can't let anybody else know what's really going on. Were you, were in you, spite of that crisis? Were you there uh, for what kind of testing were you having done? Was it stuff that was induced by the drug usage, or was it just regular tests? So it was. It was. Uh, it was because of the drug usage. So part of my, you know, experience was I was using opioids, and I would throw up daily. Every morning, I would be woken up um, and, and have to throw up first thing in the morning. And I, I did that for probably a couple of years. And I also wasn't eating well. So my health, I looked horrible. I was, yeah. you know, incredibly underweight. I was throwing up. And as a justification to my family of why I looked like this, I didn't tell them that I was using drugs, but I told them, you know, there's something going on with my stomach. I throw up every day. So I started undergoing all of these tests and seeing specialists after specialists having endoscopies done. They're trying to figure out what is causing this. 
you know, and I put my whole family through this ordeal of all of these doctor's visits, all of these endoscopies, when really I knew, right? I, I knew what was causing it. Um, but it was, and, and I think for my mom as well, it was less painful to think that maybe it was some other underlying medical condition and that it wasn't a substance use disorder. Um, so I was undergoing some allergy testing to try to figure out. They thought I had this uh, condition called eosinophilic esophagitis. That's what I was trying to start to blame rather than substance use. Yeah, I had, I similarly, I had a heart problem uh, that was brought on by, by substance use. And, uh, you know, it was cardiomyopathy, which was, long story short, pretty much induced alcohol and drugs. Um, at least that's what we think now. Uh, but at the time, I wouldn't admit it. They were like, hey, how do you think you got this? I was like, I don't know. You know, they were like, well, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, they were like, a virus could have gone through your body or attacked it. Uh, and that's how your, your heart muscle was screwed up. Or you could have gotten it through taking drugs and drinking. And I was like, oh, virus for sure. Because I didn't want anybody yeah. to get in the way of the alcohol and drug usage. And that for a regular person to identify with is, is, is tough, but for one addict talking to another, it's business as usual. It, it, it does feel like business as usual, but I think it's, it's always important to highlight that when the addiction starts, those things aren't usual, right? They become the normal, but you know, if I were to start and the first time I use drugs, all of those consequences happen very likely I would have stopped, but in the beginning they were working in terms of giving me this emotional sort of release and sense of peace that I was seeking that worked until it didn't, you know, and then all of these consequences and it was this internal battle of just trying to maintain once it had gotten too deep. And I think that's where, you know, it's just so important to highlight these stories and talk about what, what can happen, what does happen. And again, also to really highlight that recovery is possible so that if you do find yourself there, to know that it's not hopeless, you know, that there is a way out. Recovery can look different, but, but you can absolutely live a better life than that. Let's go back to the beginning for you. What, the first time you got drunk or high, the first time you mentioned it worked for you, when was that? Um, so it was actually, it was the second time I drank. The, the first time I drank... I didn't feel the effects. I didn't drink enough to get drunk. And, but even without feeling the effects, I, I still went back and tried it again. But, you know, the first time I got drunk, I was probably 13 or 14. And, you know, I'm in this field drinking with a bunch of friends. And I just remember this sort of like overwhelming sense of kind of just feeling like I belonged, you know, that, that feeling that I had as a kid surrounded by friends and having that social anxiety of, you know, will people accept me? All of that washed away. And I was just had this sense of belonging with the people that I was with. It felt like I was in this community. We were in it together. We were all experiencing the same thing and it was just euphoric. Um, and, and for me, from that moment on, there wasn't, you know, physical dependence right away, but that obsession really started for me almost immediately because I knew as soon as I felt that, I wanted to feel it again. I, I hear people say in recovery and 12-step meetings, you get 
from the, you know the program and, and and working with other alcoholics and having a spiritual connection the same thing that you got from alcohol and drugs and and what you just described right uh, everything washed away uh you were in the moment and that sense of community and camaraderie that's what you can get on the other side of all this stuff in recovery and so it's like the thing that we wanted the whole time is is there in a healthy manner but we have no clue at least for me i had no clue because i felt the same way uh when you get started it's that you know you want to be i wanted to be a part of so now you feel a part of through drinking how does it progress for you um, first, I just I love that analogy because it, it really is through recovery. I found all of those things that I thought I was seeking through drugs and alcohol. But for me, it progressed from there, you know, pretty quickly. Um, I recognized quickly that, you know, I could I could only drink at that time kind of on the weekends. And where'd you grow up, you by know, the way, outside just for people that don't know outside Philly, right? Or around just the Philly? outside of Philadelphia. Okay. Yep. Where'd you go to high school? I went to St. Joe's Prep. Oh, no kidding. I went I, I went to yeah. Archbishop Carroll. Okay. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, so grew up there. And, and for me, so then that next step was, you know, recognizing that I love the way alcohol made me feel mentally, but I didn't like, you know, it upset my stomach, I, you know, but I would push through that. So I, I started quickly smoking marijuana and... For me, it gave me a lot of that same euphoria without upsetting my stomach. Um, and it was also something that I realized that I could do during the day. Yeah, I was just about right? to say, I, yeah, you can do a that. Little bit, yeah. A little bit less noticeable to, you know, smoke in school or, you know, kind of throughout the day at different times. And, and really following that same trajectory, you know, by the time I was 16, I found cocaine. And for me, cocaine at that time offered all of those things. It didn't have the smell. You know, I wasn't necessarily slurring my words. In hindsight, you know, it must have been pretty apparent, but I was convinced that nobody knew, yeah. right? That I had this this tiny amount of drugs in my pocket that I could use during the day. Nobody could know, but I could feel this feeling all day long. And that's what I had always craved was how do I maximize my ability to ability to feel like this? Um, you know, so continuing on with that, and that was a much more expensive habit and it got, you know, a little bit more complicated, but how often were you doing uh, cocaine in high school? All, all the time. Um, so really it was, you know, dependent on what I could afford, but you know, most days in school, in the bathroom, um, you know, day in and day out, the marijuana was still consistent. That was every day, but Anytime I had the opportunity to, you know, to be able to afford cocaine, I was doing it. And then that led me to the opiates. Um, how were you, know, how were you in school, by the way? Painkillers. So, so my, my thing was, I was, my grades were doing okay. Um, and this is, let's say, kind of junior going into senior year. Uh, junior year is where the cocaine really started. And then senior year everything was really kind of a, you know, a mess externally, but my grades were, were decent at the time. And I did really, really well on my SAT. So I applied to 13 colleges and I got you know, accepted into all but one of them. I got one wait list and they were all, you know, early application. So I knew 
early in the fall, my senior year, that, you know, I had about 10 academic scholarships. I was going to school and, and it justified that what I was doing wasn't a problem. Yeah, sure. Because, you know, externally, I've, I've got these acceptances and scholarships and, you know, whether or not I'm doing well in school no longer matters because I'm just ready to, to move on from high school and get to college. And, you know, at that point, I just gave up any effort to even try to make an attempt in school and things really from there started to suffer. It's funny because I can relate growing up in the suburbs like that. You know, you're you're from a family where it doesn't seem like you had to want for anything as a kid, regardless what's going on behind the scenes. Or you know, as as far as I knew, everything was being handled. And it's like born on third base. Thought I hit a triple. I've heard a guy say that, and and, uh, yeah. and that sounds like your experience. Uh, everything is going well. I mean, and you're you're smart. You're popular. You're doing drugs all day in school, and you're not you're not getting consequences. Uh, this is a dangerous combination we have going for this guy we're talking about right now. Yeah, there, there, and there were really, you know, essentially no consequences up until, you know, the first real consequence I hit was later in my senior year. The school was, you know, not surprisingly catching on, and you know they searched me. You know, I, I was able to hide everything. They couldn't find any drugs on me, but they said, you know, we, we know you're high. We want you to get a drug test. Um, you know, so that was kind of the first time I was confronted with with what I had been doing because, you know, meanwhile, this whole time I've, in my eyes, successfully hidden this from my parents, from my friends, from everybody. Nobody had any idea what was going on. Um, you know, so I remember my mom gets called. We've got to go after school to Quest Diagnostics, go take a drug test, which I know I'm going to fail. Yeah. And I fail. And what comes um, up? So on, on that one, what it was fortunate or unfortunate, yeah, depending right. on how you look at it. But <laughs> but at the time, um, the only thing that showed up on that one was marijuana. Okay. Um, so it, it felt like, you know, it was, I think for my parents, um, easier to say, you know, it's can't believe he's doing it but it could be worse you know they they took it seriously but at the same time there wasn't you know when that happened which is you know i think an area that um i hope as a country as people were we're doing better with now and i and i think in most cases we are but when that happened and the, and the school got involved and i failed this drug test it was never brought up to me that I might have a problem. It was never brought up that maybe I should seek treatment. You know, it was more about just being punitive and, you know, this threat of if I can't pass a drug test, I'm not going to graduate. And, and and that's how I looked at it was, you know, they're just trying to punish me. Um, not that anybody was trying to, to help me, though. In hindsight, I know my mom and dad only wanted to help me. You know, but I, I there was no hand that reached out and said, "Hey, do you want to get help?" Yeah. Not that I know if I would have been open to it at the time, but you know, it was, it was just different. Yeah, I mean, it's at that age. Not only was I addicted, uh, but also as far as it just wasn't. I couldn't. I couldn't even imagine getting help. I just wasn't. I I, I wasn't ready. Uh, if if I had gotten that hand up, but who knows? It never 
that it never happened that way yeah. for me. So you start to experiment with opioids. Is that towards the tail end of high school? Yeah, tail end of high school, and then really, you know, once I got into college, that became my only, you know, the only thing I was focused on. You know, in order to put all of my energy towards opioids, I stopped. Um, you know, essentially stopped using everything else, and that became my my single sort of just the thing that my life revolved around. And, and for me, when that happened is where things really dramatically started to fall apart. Was there a point, um, Harry, where you were like, uh, as, as things fell apart, when you were like, okay, I'm not doing this for fun anymore. I'm not doing this, you know, I, to beat the system. I'm doing this to get by. Was there a specific moment uh, or, or time frame you can wrap your arms around and share with people? So there, there were quite a few. I'd say the most specific and, and kind of first one that I tried to take action on was, you know, when I was getting these drug tests at the end of my senior year, you know, I knew something wasn't right. Um, and, and I figured it was just all my friends and everything, you know, this environment I'm in. So I made a decision that I picked a school, College of Charleston, which was, you know, relatively far away, and I knew that nobody I knew was going there. Yeah. And I assumed that, you know, when I got to college at this new place, I would do things different, right? Because in my mind at that time, if I could go back to just drinking and maybe smoking marijuana, it would be like it was when I was 14. It wouldn't be that bad. And what happened was, you know, of course, as, you know, we often say wherever we go, we bring ourselves with us. You know, as soon as I got to Charleston, I found all of those things that I had been doing and nothing changed. But that was for me a moment where I recognized pretty early that something's wrong and tried to do something about it, but tried to do something about it without support or really knowing what to do. Um, and unsurprisingly, it failed. But but those things continued to happen. And really with the opioids and the withdrawal symptoms, that's where it was became just a daily realization that this is a problem. I've got to try to stop. And just I, I day in and day out proved to myself that I was incapable. I tried so many different things. I tried to wean myself off. I tried to switch substances. I tried anything that I could think of. One of the last things I tried when I was, you know, towards the end of my road was I tried to become a police officer and I took the exam. I did really well. And then I, you know, I of course couldn't show up for the physical because I knew I wouldn't pass the drug test. But the most important moment that I had that, that clarity and sort of in hindsight um, was a critical moment for me was when I was 20 years old completely caught up in this i found out that the girl i was seeing my girlfriend at the time was pregnant and i was going to become a dad and you know i have an incredible father you know he's always been a strong father figure in my life i knew what kind of father i wanted to be um and i knew that drugs weren't in that picture so when i found this out you know instead of feeling sort of overwhelmed and scared I felt hopeful, right? Because I believed yeah, here's in a, that here's moment a reason. that, yeah, and I, I truly believed in that moment that that was going to be the thing that saved me, that just having a baby, my love for my daughter was 
would stop all of this and I'd, you know, be the person I would want to be. I remember telling my dad um, when I broke them the news that they were going to become grandparents that, you know, look, I'm going to man up. Because at the time they're like, yeah, hey, you got to get it together. They they kind of the walls are closing in on you. I'm assuming. Yeah, and, and he, you know, he he shot that idea of me manning up kind of right down. But I I didn't believe him. I wanted to prove to him. And what I found was that I was incapable. And I continued to use after my daughter was born, and the just the internal suffering that I put myself through and experienced as a result of that, you know, every day wanting nothing more than to stop, but every day being incapable and the justifications of, you know, why I'm doing this and, you know, that I can't be sick. If I'm in withdrawal, I can't take care of my daughter. Those crazy rationalizations that just kept me stuck for the first year of her life until I went into treatment. So a couple things because and and I can relate in the sense where I don't have a child, but my brother, who's sober, I guess fifteen or sixteen years, same situation as you. He looked to his the birth of his daughter, his first daughter, as a way out, um, and it was just like it was. He he became a tortured soul because it's like I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, and then the next thing he knew, he's drinking, he's getting drugs, and it was uh, just like you, like a treacherous first year and a half. Uh, and it sounds like the ultimate pain. Some of the pain that, that you're going through before you get sober, I, I just want to touch on. You write about and talk about a story where there, there was a home invasion you were involved in. Uh, and it's something that you just kind of, at the time, wrote off. Uh, and this shows the insanity. Ah, it's just part of the lifestyle. You know, I'm, I, if I'm going to live in this world, it's almost like a mob hit. You know, hey, guys in the mob, if you're in, it's easy to rub them out, right? Because that's the lifestyle they've chosen. And you've chosen this lifestyle of being a drug addict. So this home invasion for you is another day at the office? Yeah, at the time, you know, and it's, it's remarkable to think about in the context of my life. And you mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up in a wonderful home in the suburbs. You know, my, my family was, you know, we we're really fortunate. Um, I didn't have to want for much, but my drug use had me spending essentially all of my time in, in North Philly where the environment I was in was an environment that I sought out, and it was nothing like the loving, caring environment of my home. And, you know, that night when the home invasion happened, you know, it, it really – it did two things. One, you know, it, it did feel like this is just, this is what happens, right? And, and part of that was the, the realization that I had recognized that, you know, even though I wasn't the one committing the home invasion, through my drug use, I recognized that I could be capable of that, right? Because I had so many times proved to myself that I was capable of all of these things that I thought were morally wrong that led to my shame. I, I continued to lie. I stole, and if I could do all of these things, of course people are going to rob me, you know? So it, it felt like understandable. Um, and it just felt like something that was part of the life that I was stuck in, that those things happened. And, and so stuff like this is happening. Now we mentioned your mother, Madeline Dean, uh, she's getting ready 
uh, for, for a run at the state house and you are now bottoming out. You're in free fall. You write about, you're, you're stealing money from your parents. She writes about it. And I think the end of this, correct me if I'm wrong, is there's about four grand in one night that you take. Uh, and you say that, and this is exactly how I felt when I got help. You were just out of lies, man. You were out of gas. You're confronted for the, you know, the umpteenth time. Uh, and what, what happens? What, you, what do you say? What are you feeling? And what leads to that moment of clarity where you finally get some help? So part of it was, so I, I had, over the course of a couple of weeks, I started, you know, stealing from my parents. And um, like I said, it, it within a couple of weeks, it was about $4,000. And it, you know, it started off slow. I promised I'd repay it. And it got to a point where I knew I couldn't. And, you know, it was a Friday night. I remember it vividly. You know, even though I'm stealing, I then go on a Friday night to ask my mom, say, hey, I need a little bit of money. And she tells me there's something wrong with the bank account. But she, she can't give me any money and doesn't say anything else. And I knew in that moment I was caught. Yeah. I knew she was going to figure it out. You know, wh whether she knew already or not, I didn't know, but I knew she was going to figure it out. And I started trying to figure out what I'm going to say. How am I going to justify this? How am I going to spin it? And from Friday until Tuesday, I tried to figure that out because I wasn't confronted by my parents until the following Tuesday. So I had all of this time just torturing myself, trying to justify what I had done or explain it or find a way to come up with the money. And by the time they confronted me, I, I recognized that I truly, I just had nothing. And I also felt like I had nothing to lose because I had accepted that this was just who I was and I was, there was no way out for me. So when they confronted me with the truth that I had been stealing and asked me if I wanted to get help, instead of spinning that story that I always spun, I just, you know, I had nothing in me. I just said yes, because I, I couldn't, I couldn't see any other option at the time. And, you know, and, and that's not to say in that moment I had this sense of hope that, you know, I'm going to find recovery. I was just at a moment of complete brokenness where I didn't know what to do other than just throw my hands up. And, and I love that. I, I think I read it either in the People magazine or, or the Philly Inquirer that you, you just had. They asked you if you were ready to get help and you just had the one word answer. Yes. And yep. uh, what, did you feel a sense of relief when that comes out of your mouth? A, a huge sense of relief because for, you know, I'm, I guess I'm 22 at this time. And, you know, for the past eight years, I've been guarding this secret about my youth every single day. I've never admitted to it i've never spoken about it and if you hold on to something that tight for that long that's surrounded with as much shame as that is to finally let go and just say yes was an incredible relief and so you go to you go to treatment how did you end up you, you and i went to the same place 
Uh, and it's in my opinion, and I'm sure yours is too, because you, you know, you're a part of the solution there, uh, working with them at Karen. They churn out miracles. Uh, how did you get connected uh, with the folks at Karen, and how did you end up there? So I, and I'm, I'm, I love the work that Karen does. And, you know, I love that we have that connection because I think it, you know, there's, there's different, there's so many layers to connection. There's, you know, we're connected through recovery, but I think just connected through that experience also adds a lot, right? So we know kind of what, what helped us get started in this journey. But for me, you know, there were, there were two things. One was, you know, more kind of, serendipitous my uncle my great uncle who lived with my family had been um an oblate priest and he actually knew dick and Catherine karen no wow decades before um so so and my mom had gone to and for those who don't know that's dick uh karen right he starts up it's called chit chat back in the day uh and it evolves into this 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 rehab so go ahead um, so yeah, and, and chit chat was founded more than 60 years ago, you know, it's really a way to help alcoholics and, and just through that mission of just trying to help others find recovery. But so, so my mom had this connection, you know, to, to Karen and to chit chat from way back. But another thing that was also really important was, you know, when I was going through this and trying to find ways to continue to hide it, she was trying to figure out what was going on she could see through it but she didn't know what to do and she also was you know in a lot of senses in denial so she went to karen has a parent support group um and she went to a support group but she knew someone there and she got you know coffee that she says was the longest coffee of her life she ended up talking to this woman for for hours um you know about what we were going through and and my mom was able to find relatability and guidance and hope and insight through that conversation so that she knew when, when they confronted me, it was lined up, you know, it, I was going to go to Karen. She had her mind set on it. And, you know, when they asked me if I wanted to get help and I said, yes, it was a matter of minutes before I was on the phone with the admissions team at Karen and, packing my bags and in the car yeah you know i'm gonna stop you right there because this is not you know you're a professional i'm not i'm just somebody with experience but i've talked to professionals about this and if people are listening to what uh harry just shared with us that is something that has been shared with me that if you've got somebody in your life that's struggling and that is really like we talked about use the term i did in free fall that it is if you can if you have the means or you have the support system or the people around you that when that person says they are ready to go, that you are ready to go along with them, right? That that you're on the phone. It's a matter of minutes because if you give us more time, dude, if you give if you give an alcoholic or a drug addict another 12 hours, they may be on another run where they may die on or they may wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I feel better today. I'm, I'm good. To capitalize on that vulnerability uh, is, is a way to save a life sometimes. Absolutely. The, the window of opportunity for me, I, I felt sort of came and went. There were different times along my journey that I would have been open to it. And I wasn't, you know, the help didn't feel available, um, but it was so important to have it available right when the opportunity came. So you go to Karen, 
and and what starts to change what starts to happen as you start to experience or embrace recovery so a lot of things happened um and, and you know i always say when i went into treatment i didn't know there wasn't a single person in my life that i could identify that was in recovery um so i didn't know what recovery meant what it could look like what was going to come next but but the things that i noticed when I got to Karen were one, a, a community and a sense of relatability that I had never experienced for the first time being around people that, that understood exactly how I felt without me even having to tell them that I had experienced the same thing. Uh, and really importantly that we're willing enough and vulnerable enough to share those things with me because there were things that I thought I could never share or open up about. Um, and, and something that there's a guy, Father Bill, um, who sadly has passed, but was just a staple forever yeah. at Karen and did incredible work. And he said something to me that I'm certain he said to anybody who had listened, uh, but it, it really started a perspective shift in my mind as to what I was going through. And, you know, he just said, Harry, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And for me, that, that little change in perspective opened my mind because before that, I truly believed that I was a bad person to my core. And because of that, nothing was going to change, but it also opened up this idea that if I'm sick, I can get better. You know, if I'm, if I'm sick, things can change. They can improve. But I need to do some things about it. And, you know, going through the process of Karen, you know, I, I struggled a lot. I had a really hard time letting go and, you know, getting honest and opening up. Um, but I listened and I, you know, I took it seriously. And, you know, something that was critical for me was just to have that community of people that I could relate to. So I was in the young adult men's program, which put me just with other guys who are around my age. Um, so it made it easier for me to quickly come in and relate and not point to somebody because they're a lot older than me or, you know, somebody that I couldn't identify with. You know, what Karen did in a sense was really kind of take that opportunity for me to back myself out of it away so that I immediately just dove into this community of people that I could identify with um, that had been through what I had been through. And we were all trying to find this way into recovery together. Yeah. And, and you're there for four months. For me, it was, uh, or maybe you were in, in, involved in, in some arm with Karen for four months, but I, I read four months and I could relate to that because I was a month at Karen and I think four months at a place called Maryland Recovery Partners at the time. I don't think it's around anymore, but they, the Karen kind of funneled me there. And the long-term treatment for me was, I believe, how why I'm still sober today. I, I just don't think I was ready to go back out after 30 days. Uh, I had tried going to you know 12-step meetings, and it just, look, it didn't take. That's my story. Um, and it did take when I, you know, for me, a major, a pivotal moment was, when I said, yeah, I'll go to this. Because at that point, I, somehow, I, I 
whether they would have let me come home or not, I, 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 the decision at least felt like mine. And I remember take, finally starting to take advice and saying, yeah, I'll go. I'll go to this long term. You know, it was a halfway house, but I'll go. And, and my life changed. You know, somebody told me it's a couple months for the rest of your life. And damn, if that wasn't spot on. Uh, so for you to be there for that long term, how, do you, how, how did that affect you at the time um, and your ability to stay sober? So I, I think I agree with, you know, really everything that you just said. So I was at Karen for a month and then I also went to, um, you know, really structured sober living environment for three months after that. And I'll say, you know, at, at one level, it was incredibly hard. Yeah, I was in treatment. Totally. totally I, ha- I, ha- I, I had a new baby at home and I had, you know, this, this sense inside myself that I've got to get back for my daughter. I've got to get back for my daughter. Um, but something that Karen did, I think just an incredible job with was involving the family in treatment so that I wasn't just going through this process by myself, because if it was just me, I would have gone straight home Mm -hmm. after, right. You know, but, but what they did was they involved and included my family and helped them understand what I was going through and how they can support me. And then as a family, everybody really recognized that I, I needed more time. And I think that, you know, looking at treatment, taking a step back, right, and this kind of me looking from today, but it's so important to look at treatment as, you know, treatment for an ongoing mental health brain disorder, right, and not this episodic, episodic treatment of I viewed rehab as, you go to rehab for 28 days, you go home, you're good. And that's not how it works, right? It's an ongoing process of healing that for me really did require that, you know, I needed more time in a really structured environment. I didn't want to do it. Um, but like you said, making that decision to continue and do three more months, um, which felt like the longest amount of time I could imagine at in that moment. But in, in hindsight, it it's just a moment in time in a life and, and what it gave me in terms of a foundation for recovery that I can build the rest of my life on is almost undescribable. Yeah. And that, that, uh, that family component you spoke about, I have uh, an, ex- an experience, somebody in my life who went to Karen, it didn't take, you know, they're still out there like so many of us, it happens to, but his family, was a part of that ride, right? And when I say ride, I mean in a positive sense of, of going to Karen, visiting with everyone there, visiting with um, their relative who was sick with, uh, with this disease. And that family uh, is more united than ever on the other side of this. They, they know how to, how to handle uh, their loved one who's still out there, who's, you know, it's day to day. I know personally I was as hopeless as you could possibly be. Um, and then you know, and then I wasn't anymore. Uh, but there's, there's, it can go both ways, right? Somebody can get it. Um, and it can be this beautiful story. Um, and maybe somebody doesn't get it, but the family still knows how to deal with them not getting it through this, like you mentioned, this all encompassing treatment, uh, which I just think is so important because the family is so affected by this. I mean, you, you, you know, Back to you real quick, and this is just so interesting. Your mother is, is undergoing, about to launch her campaign to run for the state house now with the U.S. house. And, you know, you're, you're, you're hitting bottom. 
and she's sending you to treatment. I mean, that you need help to figure that out. If you're if you're your mother, I can only imagine. Absolutely, and, and I give her a lot of credit for the work and sort of effort that she had put in before to know that you know when that moment came, she didn't hesitate. Right, she knew what she had to do. She had to draw a boundary. Um, but yeah, it was hard. It was, it was. I went to treatment exactly a week before um, her first major election. A week to the day. It was Tuesday the week before. So you know, the house. It was a whirlwind. But what you talked about in terms of the family, and you know, I think it's so important. You know, if any parents are listening, but the importance for the whole family system to heal. And that only happens if, if each person is trying to heal individually, because if, you know, even if I were to recover and go back to an environment where my whole family is still struggling, yeah, the other side it's of it's not going to help, you know, it's not going to help my recovery and it's not going to help them. So I think, you know, knowing that everybody deserves an opportunity to heal from this because, you know, it, it's so hard on the parent. It's, you know, and if it is your parent that's struggling, it's so hard on the kids. It doesn't matter who it is, but, you know, if you have that connection to somebody, whether you're the identified patient or you're a loved one is the one that's struggling. I mean, everybody needs an opportunity to heal. And, and if you, you, you get to, to rehab, if you're at all like me, you know, because your, your mother's undergoing this major life event, you probably feel like a real shithead. Uh, because it's like the smoke starts to clear. You're like, oh man. But like, you know, that is the disease talking too, right? I mean, like you're a sick guy. And and from my own experience, there's no better place to feel like a shithead than than a place where you can get well and you're around people that'll help you heal. Um, and yep. and you start taking yourself less seriously, and life starts to become fun again. And for you, it's it, it looks like it's a lot of fun. And what you're doing now. Uh, you know, you're just you're creating, you're packing stuff into the stream of life with two books we mentioned under our roof, and you're always loved. Uh, and you're also you, you get married. By the way, how do you start for people that listen to this? I always try to ask a guy like you or somebody that's sober and seems like they're really living life like a loose shirt. How do how do you start to date again? Like how do you start to how do you meet a woman? You're married now. You have a beautiful family, but how does that how does that come together? So for me, that that was something that, you know, was really important, right, was to find a new relationship. And, and a big part of that, you know, it can sound cliche all it, all it does, but, it, you know, it was so important to be able to develop a relationship with myself first, to learn how to sit by myself and be alone before I tried to fill that with somebody else. Because that's what I, when I, you know, when I was, struggling I always had a girlfriend always because they provided me the self-validation that I couldn't pull from within so for me in terms of trying to date again is really developing that self-esteem and self-worth within myself first so that I could be a healthy partner um, and with my wife you know it, it turned out that we formed an incredible friendship first and we were friends before we started dating. And, you know, that has been just an incredible foundation for our relationship uh, that's been so rewarding. And what are what is your life like today? You know, what do you do to stay sober? Uh, it's clear what you do as far as service is concerned uh, through your work with Karen. But what, what do you do 
to stay fit spiritually and, and to stay, to stay, you know, like I said, living life like a loose garment. So my life today looks, you know, it, it, every year looks a little bit different. You know, when I first got into recovery, I was going to meetings every single day. Um, you know, what it looks like today is my life is incredibly full, but it's full with fulfilling things that really make me feel good about what I'm doing. And, you know, so part of it is definitely, I still get to meetings. I'm still involved with my own recovery process, um, in a meaningful way, but, but also what my life looks like is, you know, I have three kids now. I've got a wife. I live in New Jersey. I've, you know, worked in Washington, DC. I'm back in school. My days are, you know, incredibly busy. Um, but it's, it's a life that I've created. It's a life that I, you know, wanted to live when I was about six years in recovery is when I reached out, you know, I was working this job. I was in sales management. It was, you know, great experience. I got to travel the world, do a lot of exciting new things. You were working in cycling, uh, right? But I, yeah. Yeah, that's and, cool. You know, so I, I spent a ton of time traveling and, and it was an, a really rewarding experience, but it wasn't, you know, for me, the, the, it didn't have the fulfillment that necessarily I was looking for. And that's, I think, one of the real benefits for me of recovery is being able to make decisions that are hard decisions, right, about a career path, about something else, and, and really look at what's best for me. You know, not to just always be chasing, you know, the money or the next thing. And, yeah. you know, I reached out to Karen um, to try to find an opportunity to to go work for an organization that, I so truly believe in, you know, and not just because I went there and I had a great experience, but like you look at, you know, I get excited whenever I look at Karen and the things that are happening, you know, in terms of the new outcome studies that have just come out where, you know, the, the readmission rate for somebody to go back into treatment who's left Karen is less than 6%. So you've got about 90 at, wow. at 90 days. So you've got about 94% sort of recovery rate at 90 days post-treatment, which is remarkable across this industry. And looking at what, you know, what we're doing for, you know, really developing a new research center um, to really just drive this field forward. Like those are the things today that the research, the ability to try to help somebody else, um, to try to like, have an opportunity to do a podcast like this and tell my story so that maybe just maybe somebody might hear it and identify and recognize that recovery is possible. Um, you know, the life that I have today is a life that I've designed to be just incredibly fulfilling and rewarding. And the, the most exciting thing is, you know, that it's not done, right? I'm still yeah. young. I still have so much ahead of me. And that is what are you, 30, that, 31, 32? Yeah, I'm 31. That's and awesome. I, I remember, you know, I remember the vision I had for my life in my very early recovery when I started to see that recovery was possible. And I had this vision and it was such a small vision for what I could accomplish over a lifetime. You know, but I surrounded myself with people in recovery who really just opened my mind to what is possible 
you know, and what to just expand my, my horizon because, you know, living the life of substance use disorder and just caught up in that, you know, I had ingrained in myself that I wasn't capable of more, you know, but through recovery, I've been able to see that, that really anything is possible. One thing I and pick, we can live lives that are fulfilling. If we and your life is certainly fulfilling. And the one thing I like that you said, which uh, I need to lean more on, right? Because day to day, it's not all unicorns and rainbows. But your life, your life, you designed it. You know, as much as there are things around us happening that we can't control, you are now in control of Harry and the decisions you make. Whereas before, dude we were just in the wind, right? I mean, and, and, and we were going down the drain, or even today when we're not working a program, I find other people making decisions for me, or I find myself in circumstances, and I'm like, hey, well, how did this happen? Well, it happened because <laughs> you, know, you just went along, um, or something like that. Last question for you before we let you get on with this fulfilling life of yours. You're going to meetings t- today. Uh, what do you tell somebody that comes up to you and says, hey, I'm just trying to get a day? Like how how can I stop? You know what what do I do? What do I do to stop drinking or using? What do you what do you share with them? Um, what if if it's somebody like that? What I what I try to do is really share. You know, one at at the foundation hope right that that it is possible because I know when I was there when I just was wanted to get one day. I wish somebody would have told me that it was possible because everybody that I was surrounded with made me feel like it wasn't possible um you know so to to share hope but i think in in, in order to do that we've got to share authentically about what you know what i went through because if i talk about my life today to my former self when i was trying to get a day i wouldn't believe myself yeah i wouldn't see myself in myself you know so so being able to go back and identify it and and that's where again it doesn't matter what you use, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, it doesn't matter. You know, being able to identify with those feelings of this sort of deep shame and hopelessness or whatever somebody's going through to say that I've been there and I didn't necessarily believe that, that it would get better either. But somebody convinced me that if I, if I stuck with this, that maybe, just maybe, recovery is possible. And with that, that little bit of open-mindedness that maybe this is possible. I gave it a try and things started to happen that I, 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 I didn't believe would happen, but in hindsight, you know, they, they were all the things that people were telling me. Yeah. It's a life beyond our wildest dreams. If we'll, if we'll get out of the way, at least for me, that's how it works. And dude, your story is amazing. You're an amazing guy. I, I will put a link to both both the books and a way people can get in touch with, with you at Karen um, you know, on this podcast. And uh, again, thank you for carrying the message and for the work you do and for, for digging in and spending time with me today. I know I, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you and getting to know you a little bit better. All right, Harry, you're the man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that.
This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. Thank you.